Thank you, guys. The uh, day I realized I was gay was the same day that I realized or learned that Christians evidently hate gay people. I was 11 years old, and I was at a wedding of a cousin up in the mountains of Appalachia in eastern Tennessee. And uh, I had learned early on that day that the groom had a brother who had been kicked out of his family because he was gay, and the family were Christians, and they weren't going to have a sinner in their household. Later, at the reception, was when I realized how glued my eyes were to one of the groomsmen. And I was noticing and remembering how I had been experiencing this. I was 11 years old, and I had been experiencing these things all all summer long. And that groomsman, I would have let him do anything he wanted to me. Whoever Jesus was, I learned he obviously wasn't for gay people. See, I wasn't raised in a church or synagogue. Uh, I was raised atheist. My father was a senior executive in the Department of Defense. We lived in suburban Washington, D.C., and I shared his atheism. I remember even as a 13-year-old kid being afraid to fall asleep most nights because I was afraid that I would die in my sleep and I would not know that I had died in my sleep because my consciousness would have ceased to be. There would be no me to, to, to be there. I wouldn't be at my own funeral. I would cease. And, uh, and so, you know, I wasn't raised in a church. I wasn't raised in a synagogue. My dad had two sons, and I was the gay one. And I had always been kind of queer. You know, at, at age six, for Christmas, I asked for my parents for an easy-bake oven and a miniature porcelain tea set so that I could do a proper English afternoon tea with all of my stuffed animals. And somewhere there's a picture of very young Greg, six-year-old Greg, holding between two fingers his, his teacup and his pinky sticking out like a rainbow flag. And I got my Easy Bake Oven, but I was also sentenced to not one but two terms on a boys' soccer team. It didn't work. I remember in seventh grade, the first day of seventh grade, I remember postering over the inside of my school locker with pinups of Madonna. This is back when she was still new and really young. Just trying to, to cover over my sense of shame. I was trying to, to throw off everybody's gaydar so that they wouldn't think I was what I was. Uh, I was experiencing what the, what the uh, um, LGBT uh, psychiatrist Psychologist Alan Downs calls the velvet rage of shame and self-loathing. Um, particularly gay people, particularly gay men of a certain age, we experience huge, massive amounts of shame that tell us that we're unlovable, that we're disgusting, that, that, that we'll always be alone, and that no one will ever care about us. Um, you know, and so we decorate our lives in a constant attempt to cover over our shame, just like I was doing to my locker. Gay men are at the top of every field in an effort to accomplish enough, to climb high enough, to earn enough money, to work out in a gym enough to build a body that will make me lovable. 
The shame just drives us to strive to make ourselves lovable, and it's because we're trying to cover over the shame that we may not even properly have diagnosed. And so it leaves us having to have the most amazing condominium or apartment in the most beautiful part of town, the most over-the-top cocktail parties, the most youthful appearance, the most fashionable wardrobe. The, you know, there's a reason they say that a gay man's 40 is a straight man's 27. Uh, it's all driven by a desire to make ourselves lovable to address the shame that we feel within. Uh, many of us once thought that those feelings of shame came from cultural homophobia. And, uh, and homophobia is certainly real and has always been a very present and powerful thing in that one particular kind of fallen sinner is treated differently from all the other kinds of fallen sinners who happen to be in the majority. But, but shame actually runs deeper than that. In cultures that have thrown off all traditional morality, in cultures like Western Europe where, where all things queer are celebrated, the reality is that the suicide rate has not dropped all that much for gay people. We're still far more likely to take our lives. Um, even when it's not felt, the shame is still there, this unrelenting drive to become lovable, uh, and it often undermines our real actual attempts to gain intimacy and closeness and, and healthy relationship. Um, Alan Downs speculates that gay shame flows from that experience that many of us had pre-puberty of being different from other boys or different from other girls. Uh, and, and that may be a factor, um, but Christianity actually proposes an answer that is far, far deeper and I think ultimately far more satisfying than the answers that the world gives us. Uh, Christianity tells us that our shame is universal, not just gay people, and that it flows from our being affected by the fall. We were created to walk with God naked in the garden, feeling no shame because there was nothing to be ashamed about. There was nothing defective until we sinned. And then we realized we were naked and we felt shame. And all of us are then born outside the garden. None of us gets to start over in the garden again. And it's at this point um, that Christianity's modern detractors will tend to pounce. Um, they'll say, you're shaming people for something that they never chose. They'll say, kids are committing suicide because your sexual ethic is inherently shaming to queer kids. And, and where churches are shaming kids for their sexuality, um, there can be some truth in that kind of critique um, sometimes. But, but some argue that Christianity itself is to blame. That Christianity is, is homophobic and in, intrinsically violent to gay people by saying that you cannot have uh, sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. After, what, six years ago, after the 2016 Orlando Pulse nightclub shooter gunned down 49 people, L.E.L. Cruz of Faith in America penned an editorial which expressed the feelings many had uh, uh, when they heard conservative religious leaders express sorrow over the massacre of so many gay image bearers. He wrote this. When those who heavily influence our policies and culture espouse the very rhetoric that causes LGBT people violence, they must be held accountable. They cannot encourage this traditional theology and wash their hands 
of the harmful and even deadly effects. It's a powerful argument that's born out of much pain and many tears. And it raises a question worth considering. Is our biblical ethic inherently violent to gay people? I mean, you look at college students. I'm looking at you. The reality is that among college students in the United States, if you were gay, you were twice as likely to have considered suicide recently as a straight person. And when you factor in religious faith to that equation, among straight people, religious, strong religious faith lowers the rate of suicide. But among gay people, it actually increases the likelihood of suicide by 38%. Now, that's any religion. That's not necessarily Jesus. But it's a reality we have to face. And yet, shame, and particularly gay shame, predates Christianity both historically and personally. I grew up an atheist. The shame was there before I ever picked up a Bible. Uh, gay people have always been shamed. You know, uh, the, the first century Roman fabulist Phaedrus, and that's a lot of Fs and PHs, a fabulist was somebody who wrote fables for a living. And uh, a, a Phaedrus, um, he, he wrote an account about the mythical Greek figure Prometheus, who was uh, creating human genitalia one day in his, in his office, and, uh, and yet he had to run to a cocktail party, and a dinner party, actually. So he, he put aside all of his work, and he went to the, to the dinner party, and, and he was out late, and he got just smashed drunk. He was stumbling all over himself. He couldn't see straight. But when he got home, he still needed to finish his task. And so he accidentally slapped some female genitalia onto some male bodies and some male genitalia onto some female bodies, and it was obviously, it was an honest mistake. But... For the children of Prometheus' blunder, they would live life with a crippling weight of toxic shame as others looked upon them as inferior. Christianity is unique, though, in that Christianity doesn't give straight people a pass. You know, Christianity says that we are differently defective, but I'm a pastor. I'm 50 years old. I've been pastoring for decades, and straight people, I want you to know that, that your sexuality is absolutely jacked up, too. There is no difference, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and, and, and you don't get partial credit for being straight, you know. Uh, and that's the great leveler, because it puts us all in need of a Savior to love us and to redeem us, and to see us all the way down and still want to be in relationship with us. You know, earlier Christians got this. You know, C.S. Lewis's best friend Arthur, Arthur Greaves, was gay. And they had grown up across the street from each other in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And, uh, um, of course, Lewis was an atheist at that point, and, and, and Greaves was the Christian at that point. And, uh, and yet when, when Arthur came out, to Lewis, C.S. Lewis, as gay in 1918, Lewis felt he was in no moral position to look down upon him or to make an issue of it because Lewis's own fascination had been with sadomasochism. He, he fantasized about uh, what he described as bringing together the most intimate of sexual moments with the intentional infliction of pain on the other. And he knew that was broken. He knew that was messed up. He was in no position to judge anyone else. Uh, and interestingly, when C.S. Lewis became a Christian a few years later, 
uh, Arthur was the first one he told. And, uh, you know, they vacationed together. They spent huge parts of their lives together. Uh, Lewis was straight as a board. He said that homosexuality was one of two sins of which he had, ne- which he had never met on the field of battle. The other one, he said, was gambling. But, uh, yeah, you'll never think of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe again. I'm so sorry. But uh, there is none righteous, not even one. You know, 50 shades of Lewis. Um, and, uh, you know, Lewis had written his early letters. He'd always signed them, his letters. And, and just Lewis's letters to, to Arthur are bound today, and it's over 500 pages. They were constantly in conversation. Lewis wanted him to move close to him so he could experience that community that Lewis had. Um, but uh, he had signed a bunch of his early letters to Arthur uh, with the Latin phrase um, philomastic, uh, which means whip lover. And when he became a Christian, Lewis became ashamed of that and asked Arthur to destroy those letters. And Arthur didn't. He kind of scribbled over the whip lover part, but you, you can still see it. It's, it's obvious. But shame is powerful. And if we're really honest, it's universal. Even when we throw off the confines of traditional morality and we declare that there is nothing wrong with my sexuality, which is a secular culture's solution to shame, uh, the reality is the shame's still strongly present. If it weren't so powerfully driving you and me, we wouldn't still be trying to make ourselves lovable. There's no escaping shame. You can remove it from your ethical system, but you cannot remove it from the human soul. It is a constantly running app in the background, always present, and it cannot be removed. In fact, the only thing I found that could deliver me from from shame was actually Jesus. Um, You know, I didn't follow Jesus because I was looking to be free from shame. I followed Jesus because I concluded that he was actually telling the truth and that I needed to follow him because of that. But, but I was shocked. I thought getting religion would, would increase my shame because of, of what I am and the things that go through my mind, uh, the temptations I experience that are so different from the temptations that most of you experience. Um, and yet, I was pleasantly surprised that the level of shame I experienced And coming to Jesus and learning about Jesus went down further and further and further and further and is almost completely eliminated. Um, You know, I uh, began to doubt my atheism in 11th grade. I was assigned a... a, uh, an assignment, we had to pick some controversial topic and I picked some issue of social justice and right and wrong and whatnot. And I had to come to this question of whether killing human beings was objectively evil. And you have to understand, you know, when an atheist starts to doubt his atheism, the way that you Christians doubt your Christianity so much, you know, it's really interesting what you start thinking about because you start thinking, okay, if there is, if it's not wrong to kill a human being, then human life has absolutely no meaning. And 100 billion years from now, when all the stars have gone out, there will, nobody, there will be nobody to know that we ever even existed. It's meaningless. Uh, you can, you know, see an old lady trying to cross the street, and, and you can either um, look the other way and hope she doesn't ask you for help, or you can stop and help her across the street, or you can shove her in front of a car. And all of those are morally equal because there's no objective vantage point from which to say what good and evil is. 
And so I didn't realize it because if there's evil, then evil is defined against the backdrop of goodness. And then you have some idea of goodness that's objective. And to have an objective notion of goodness then ends up, you have to have a ground of that. It was like Jean-Paul Sartre had said, the, the French uh, 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 nihilist, that there is, there is um, um, you can never have, a f uh, uh, no finite point can ever have ultimate meaning apart from an infinite point of reference. And I didn't realize it, but, but I was falling for the moral argument through the existence of God. Um, you know, and so I started to believe that there had to be a God, and that was quite tumultuous. And, and, and so as I was going off to college, I, I was going to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and study architecture. And, and the way they did college registration back before the Internet is everybody stood in a line on one side of UVA's uh, domed basketball arena. And you went in in a single file line through 472,000 checkpoints. And it was, like, it was like being at Six Flags going up and down and up and down these aisles. It was horrible. But at the end, you come out into this plaza and you're a registered student. And, uh, and, and, and so there were these ministries that we're all going to have booths set up. And, and I knew I needed somebody to explain Christianity to me. And, and so I, I looked at a list of where all the different groups were going to be, and I saw there was an Asian Christian fellowship, but I, I wasn't Asian. And there was a black Christian alliance, and I wasn't black. And there was a Roman Catholic student group, and I wasn't Catholic. And there was an Episcopal, Canterbury Episcopal Students Union. I wasn't that. And I went through all of these. And, and then there was the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I thought... And then there was InterVarsity, and that sounded like it was for athletes because I had only known varsity as a, as, a, as, a, as a sports thing. And then there was this other group. It's a ministry. Maybe you all have heard of it. It's called Crew. Anybody heard of Crew? Okay. Back then, it wasn't called Crew. It was called Campus Crusade for Christ, and that sounded like a group of people who go to the Middle East to kill people because they're Muslim. But I figured at least I wasn't overtly excluded and I was there there were gonna they were gonna be in the first aisle of booths and so I decided I would very sneakily go over to the second aisle and turn around and look to see if they looked weird because Christians could look weird and and unfortunately they had traded with another um, another group and they were right in front of me and they said would you like to take a survey and I froze and so that meant I was taking the survey and they asked me if I wanted to go through a outline of Christianity, and I said, yes, and then somebody showed up at my dorm and went through this little booklet in which he could have been speaking, you know, Mandarin or Ugaritic, because he was talking about spiritual death penalties and lines separating us from God and, and gaps that you have to cross and all this stuff, and I just had no clue what he was talking about, and he asked me if I'd prayed the prayer at the end, and I lied and said yes, because I didn't want to look dumb. And, uh, but he got me into a, a Bible study, and I remember a Bible study um, about a month in, uh, in which it was called How to Be Sure You're a Christian. And at that point, I was sure I was not a Christian, but that I desperately was ready to be. And I remember going back to my dorm room, and for the first time, I wasn't asking God to forgive me and begging and promising all the stuff that I'd do if he'd forgive me. I was thanking him for Jesus, who had forgiven all my sin and who had covered my shame. Jesus, who is now my Savior. I was thanking him for bringing me into the family of God, even though I had come from a far-off country. Um, 
And, and I could even then see the joy coming into my life, uh, the joy of, of, of Jesus. And it's at, at just this point that Jesus speaks into my shame in a profoundly counterintuitive way. See, religion's answer is to hide your shame because you're defective and God could never love you, so you have to hide it. The secular world's answer is to deny my shame, say there's nothing wrong with me. But Jesus offers us a third option. Uh, He offers us the only thing that can speak deeply and powerfully into our shame. He offers us the possibility of being deeply defective, broken and wrong, and loved and saved and secure in his love forever. See, my shame tells me I need to make myself lovable and do all this stuff to make myself lovable. Um, Jesus tells me I don't need to be lovable. I need to be loved, loved by God, loved by Jesus. And being loved is much better, friends, than being lovable. Jesus sees you all the way down and embraces you with tears of joy. And when that captures your heart, it changes you. There's an emotional space that only the grace of Jesus can create. You know, you can object and you say, Greg, yeah, but the other shoe has to drop because the Bible bars you from finding fulfillment in a romantic sexual relationship with another man. And, uh, um, and it's unfair that you, Greg, can't have that relationship with that special someone. And, and the Bible does limit my choices. I have a PhD in historical theology. I've studied these things. <laughs> uh, I wrote a book on this topic. And so, you know, I am more convinced than ever that God's only place where he wants us cultivating sexual desire is within uh, a marriage between one woman and one man who are committed to each other forever. And so I'm unmarried. I'm deliberately uncoupled. I'm, and I'm thriving. I'm thriving. And we should expect that. Jesus said that there are some who are eunuchs. They remain unmarried for the sake of the kingdom. And the one who can do that ought to do that. Let Jesus' words rush over you. Jesus is telling you, if you are not yet married, that you should not be praying for a spouse. You should be praying about whether God calls you into a marriage in which you serve someone else and minister the gospel to them self-sacrificially to reflect the gospel, or whether he is calling you to serve him unencumbered by the burdens of family and child-rearing in order to serve God that way, and then step out and serve God, and he will lead you, and he will show you, and he will bring joy to you And you will suffer either way, and those sufferings are what God's going to do to sanctify you and make you whole and complete and more like Jesus. You know, St. Paul says in his letter to, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, he says that that, uh, um, the man who marries the virgin does well, but the man who does not marry does better. And I'm the only pastor I've ever heard preach on that verse. But it's true. Um, it's hard because you know, people in our culture have this notion that relationships are really all about personal self-fulfillment. Uh, you know, you've heard this, that, that special someone out there, you know, your, your other half that you have to find. And, and you're seeking self-fulfillment and they're seeking self-fulfillment. And, and then you can come together with that right special person and, and, and have a truly fulfilled life. 
and it's kind of like two ticks with no dog where you're both trying to suck feelings of self-fulfillment out of each other. And, and that's not a biblical vision of marriage or of relationship. It's all about self-sacrificial love, the way Christ died for the church to love her and present her. Um, and, and so if we can get outside of that quest for um, self-fulfillment through romantic coupling, uh, then we can actually find that there are ways to do life together with people that don't require marriage. Um, you know, I... I can live without sex. That is not a big loss. Um, I cannot live without intimacy. I cannot live without love. I wasn't designed to live without these things. A committed human love. And, and, and where I see that, I see that in my church. My, my best friend uh, and I have been grabbing cocktails uh, every Thursday night for about 17 or 18 years. Uh, we vacation together. You know, we have two to three hour long uninterrupted conversations. Now, how many of your parents had every week a two to three hour long meaningful uninterrupted conversation? The reality is some of them, but I've done a lot of marriage counseling. And I ha think I have a higher level of intimacy with some of my friends than some people have with their spouse. Um, you know, there's an elder in my church, we've been getting coffee together every Thursday morning since 2002. That's before some of you were born. Um, he gets my covenant eyes report. He keeps me off of porn. I'm 15 years plus clean. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray for his family. Um, there's a family that moved to St. Louis to be part of my church where um, she was the second person I came out to uh, after becoming a Christian. And I introduced them, and I've been in their house hundreds of times. You know, the, the real test of whether your family is, is, it's the refrigerator test. If you have refrigerator rights in their home, then you're part of the family. And I can go into their house and open up the refrigerator and take out a beer and pop it and drink it. And I don't have to ask permission for that because I'm part of the family. You know, I have uh, people... Men send me Father's Day cards on Father's Day because they're men that I mentored at a time when they needed a spiritual father. Uh, you know, the Bible says more are the children of the barren woman than of she, she who has a family. Um, you know, there's, there's no community in the world that longs more fully for what the gospel can give than the LGBT community. We're all looking for acceptance. We're all looking for love. We're all looking for intimacy. We want to be able to be honest. We want to be able to take off our masks and still be embraced and be embraced permanently. And, and that's what I find in Jesus. There's a passage I want to look at. Um, it's from St. Paul's first letter to the Philippians. Uh, well, he's only letter to the Philippians. Uh, chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. If you can follow along with me, this is God's word. Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He'd, he'd thrown his whole life away to follow Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having some righteousness or some identity that I have built up through my own self-effort. But that which comes, that righteousness which comes through faith, through trusting Jesus, the righteousness that's from God 
and depends on faith, on trusting Jesus, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and by any means po- that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He writes elsewhere in Romans, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. In the good news of Jesus, I see a God who clothes me all the way down, who covers me, who clothes me with his eyes uh, uh, to be found in him with a righteousness that comes from Jesus. That's better than forgiveness, friends. It's better than being forgiven. Um, The difference between forgiveness and and righteousness um, is this. Forgiveness is, if you can imagine, you kind of went wild on the student loans and, 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 and didn't even do them through the federal government. You did them through Bank of America. And, and you've also happened to have a mortgage on a house that I don't know how you got it that early, but it's, you've, you're totally tanked and, and it's, it's in foreclosure mode and your bank account has a negative balance of like 5,000 bucks and you don't know how that happened. And you had four credit cards hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in debt, but they gave you the cards. They should have known. I mean, you're college students. But, uh, you know, so you have all this debt, and, and your car is being repossessed, and so you walk into Bank of America. I walk into Bank of America, and I say, um, yeah, I, uh, I need some help. And they sit me down at the little cubicle. Like, well, Mr. Johnson, they pull it off. Well, Mr. Johnson, Reverend Johnson, you've obviously got yourself into quite a bit of trouble. But we at Bank of America have a policy that the customer is always right. So I'm just going to wipe out all of this credit card debt and wipe out all of the all all your debt. And even all those fees, they're just gonna go away. And uh, and we're just gonna set it all as as you know, balance, zero balance. You sign a piece of paper, and you're walking out thinking, that's really good service for Bank of America. Um, and, and yet, that's forgiveness. Now, have you just been forgiven of all of your debts? Yes. Is it real forgiveness? Yes. Is that a good thing? Yes. But as you walk out of that building toward your car, two things are also true of you. One, you are completely and utterly bankrupt, and two, Bank of America doesn't ever want to see your face again. And some of us get stuck in our relationship with Jesus because we only think we're forgiven of our sins, and so we figure that we're bankrupt and he doesn't ever want to see us again. That's forgiveness. But Paul says not only that our sins are forgiven, but that we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Righteousness is this. It's when the CEO of Bank of America comes running toward your car, begging you, Dr. Johnson, please forgive us. Come in, come in, come in. We've got to set this straight. And she takes you in, and she goes off to a side room down a mahogany you know, hallway, and, and there's this you know, wooden and metal cage kind of special old-timey elevator with the, with the thing on top telling you where you're going. And, and she has this private pass key, and she puts in it, and you go in, and it's just the two of you, and, and she goes to the top floor, and you're going all the way up through this. And you finally get out, and you're realizing you're in the executive suite because everybody's like, yes, ma'am. Can I get you anything, ma'am? What can I do for you, ma'am? And so obviously, like, they're all, yes, people. And, 
and yet the CEO walks you down this hallway where there are portraits of all of the people who used to have her job, and, uh, and she takes you into her corner office with windows on both sides, big you know, bookcases everywhere, works of art and glass cases. She has you sit behind her desk, and there's a big stack of papers, and there's a lawyer. And she says, Mr. Johnson, we're just going to go ahead and sign over the bank and all of its assets to you if you would just initial here with the lawyer. And if you, don't, and if you do have a minute, we have an artist with some oil paints and a canvas in the other room so that we can capture your likeness for the boardroom. That is righteousness. That is having Jesus' resume credited to your account. That is Jesus' resume saying that you fed the 5,000 and that you always did what pleased the Father and that you raised Lazarus from the dead. That is a resume. There is nothing you're going to do to embellish that resume. And yet there's nothing you're going to do to tarnish that resume because the righteousness of Christ, all of his worth has been credited to you. Forgiveness says you can go, but righteousness says you can come. Jesus' resume creates for us and for me an emotionally safe place where I can be both defective and loved over against the world that wants to tell me I'm not defective and over against religious people who are telling me I'm defective and therefore unlovable. See, Jesus sees you all the way down and still wants to be in relationship with you. He clothes you with his eyes, and that makes the church a safe place to be a sinner loved by Jesus because Jesus loves to throw open the doors of his church to invite the weak and the broken, those damaged by the fall, straight damaged by the fall, gay damaged by the fall, however damaged by the fall, there is no difference for all of sin and are justified freely, declared righteous freely by God's grace in Jesus when we believe. Without this message of Jesus, Christianity becomes just a homophobic and violent thing just like any other human religion. If you take Jesus out of it, of course Christianity isn't for gay people. But is Jesus for gay people? If it's Jesus we're talking about, he is so totally for gay people and wants to give eternal life. Jesus loves gay people. He saves gay people. He brings us into union with God. The gospel restores the, the most important thing and gives us an identity that is greater than our sexuality, an identity as sons and daughters, as siblings of God, as brothers and sisters, or siblings of Jesus, and as children of God, uh, those with an inheritance. And that's an identity that is not going to judge you when you fail. That is an identity that is not going to abandon you as you grow old and start to look old. That is an identity that cannot be taken away by hardship, by suffering, or by death itself. Friends, you're talking to a guy who has been loved. He has been loved, and I am so very thankful for Jesus, my best friend, who died for me, who rose for me, who sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for me, who has poured out his spirit upon me and engrafted me into his church where I have a powerful experience of close, intimate, committed family. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus, the Savior.
Thank you, Father, for saving me when I was just a kid. I was just in college. Lord, didn't know up from down, but you called me, and you claimed me, and you named me, and you brought me home. I thank you, Lord, for all those who poured into me to teach me the Bible, to help me to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks into this experience of my life. I thank you, Lord, for the kindness which you've given me. And I pray, Father, for these, my, my siblings in Jesus, that you would meet them where they are, whatever shame they may bear, whatever fear they may carry, whatever secrets they may have never told anybody about, I pray you would help them to come to Jesus and to come to the people of Jesus to be known and to be loved forever. I pray through Christ Jesus who lives and reigns with you, Father, in the unity of your spirit. Amen.